So we're going to kick this thing off. We've got a great lineup of speakers today, and, and the first one I have the privilege to, to introduce. Um, you know, as we think about uh, as producers, you know, and I, I think about myself, you know, when it comes to springtime or, or fall fertilizer application, you know, I show up at my local ag supplier, uh, and they've got a cart ready for me. They've got the product ready for me, or they'll send the tinder truck out, and the product's there. I don't have to worry about it. Um, you know, it, it's it's just a matter of convenience, and, and we producers don't think about what goes behind, what what is happening behind the scenes to make sure that product is there. You know, when we think about uh, inputs, and more specifically, plant foods and fertilizer. And we are familiar with the four R's, right time, right place, right amount, and right product. Well, the same holds true for those folks working in the ag industry, making sure that that product is where it needs to be, when it needs to be there, making sure we have the right products. And there's a lot of things. It's a very complex, uh, very complex uh, situation to try to get all these uh, plant foods in the right place at the right time. And there is nobody better in my mind, than the gentleman that I'm getting ready to introduce. And it's Chris DeMoss, the Plant Foods Director for MFA Incorporated. Chris has been with MFA for many years. Uh, he's a very energetic person, very passionate. He has a farming background from Pettis County, and he is the best person that I know of that can will, will share the, the intricacies about the, the plant foods industry and the supply chain industry and the, some of the challenges we have. Chris, please uh, come up and take a... Take your spot. Well, I'm not sure if I can really live up to all that, Gavin, but we'll try. Uh, what about a, a slide? Uh, do we have the uh, mover here? I'm going to move around if that's okay. All right, so as David said, I'm Chris DeMoss. I'm director of plant foods for MFA. I've been with MFA since 1995. And most of my time, well, all of my time has been in commodities. Uh, when I first started with MFA, I sold fertilizers out uh, in our expansion areas like Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, Arkansas. I've sold a fertilizer in Illinois, New Mexico. Um, most of that stuff was truckloaded at the time. You know, so a lot of times I was selling the product, I was arranging the freight. I did that for five years. And for a couple of years, I actually merchandised grain for MFA. I worked with the soybeans and did a little bit of wheat, okay? And then really for the last 20 years, I've been on the buying side of the fertilizer. Um, you know, just to give you a scope of the volume that MFA uses, we, we consume in our system about a million tons, a million tons of fertilizer. About 500,000 of those tons go into our retail system, okay? Then we've got joint ventures like our uh, agri-services in Brunswick where we use another 250,000 tons of fertilizer. And then the other, we still uh, wholesale in those markets like what I did back, you know, in 95, that era. So that's roughly the volume that we do. That seems like a fair amount. Uh, certainly for this area, it is one of the larger uh, amounts, and uh, we are one of the larger dealers in this area, but we're still not the largest in the U.S., right? You know, we mainly play on the river. The river really drives a lot of our value. I'm going to be using language today that I just do it by default. You know, I'm going to be talking about, when I say NOLA, I mean New Orleans. You know, if you're a grain guy, you say SIF. I don't know why they use that term, but they do. There's no SIF. It's not really even ECO's term anymore. You know what that means. So we're just going to talk a little bit about how value is created, uh, what to look for for this next year, and then hopefully I can get you guys engaged and maybe answer questions that you might have. 
So I'm going to start with this, uh, this next slide I got from the Fertilizer Institute, okay, TFI. And I'm a board member of TFI. And it's an organization, you know, that resides in, the U, uh, in Washington. And they work with policymakers and they try and help, you know, uh, make things conducive for fertilizer industry so that we can get business done. Make sure that the rules don't come too far off the uh, rail. Okay, but they used this slide last fall, they created it. You, you may have seen me use this before, but I think it's so perfect. Um, it, it's really simple, and this is going to give you all the answers on what creates the price of fertilizer, okay? Let's see. Hey, Gavin, is there anything I need to do? Let's try this. There it is, right there. Those are all the factors that go in to create your price of fertilizer. Just memorize that real quick and you'll get it all figured out. Okay, no problem, right? I just want to hit a few of these things. That's why I've got this slide up there. One of my sayings, I've said it for a long time. You may agree with me, you may not, that's okay. Uh, but the two biggest factors in our industry are weather and governments. And the least predictable, governments. Because when the government decides to do something, it happens overnight, right? And I'm not talking about just the US government, I'm talking about the governments of the world. How many of you have been following what's going on in Belarus? Well, I'm backing up. How many of you know where Belarus is? All right, there's a pretty good start. How many of you have been following what's going on in Belarus? Right? There's a lot of political tension. A lot of people, a lot of governments in the world don't like how Belarus treats their people. And so what they've done is they put sanctions on their potash. Belarus produces a lot of potash. If you take Belarus and Russia, that accounts for 40% of the world's potash, those two countries. Right, potash is not thrown everywhere, right? It's really in Russia, Belarus, you've got huge mine in Canada, those are really the two biggest places. There's a little bit in Israel. You know, there's a few pockets in the other places in the world. But the two biggest production places in the world are Canada, Russia, and Belarus. So when we decide that we don't like how they're doing business and we put sanctions on that, you know, currently no tubs are coming to the U.S. from Belarus. That's significant. It changes trade flows. It happens overnight. And there's a lot of uncertainty. You know, there's always this posturing. Are they really going to do this or are they not? So then you've got companies and traders that are anxious. They don't want to take that risk in that position. So even, even if there's not a, a sanction in place, just the talk of or threat of can put a cloud over the market. Okay? So that's one example of what I'm talking about when a government decides to do something. You know, it changes things quite quickly. One of the other things that maybe you you guys don't know or realize or think about is uh, something like what goes on in India. Okay, India does their ag subsidies in a slightly different way than we do here in the U.S. They do a lot of their subsidy uh, with input subsidy, right? So they subsidize the cost of urea. And like in a lot of places outside of the U.S., the government is involved in the business they have a fingerprint on that business. They have a say in how that business runs certain things. You know, it's not 
totally run by the government, but there's always a voice in the background on how they're going to behave. It's true of about every country in the world, except for the U.S. and Brazil, where it's a little bit more free and open. And we've got issues here, too. But I'm bringing this up to say that, you know, when India goes to the market to buy urea, all right, they're going to pay some market values. In the industry, we call it they tender. They tender for urea, they tender for phosphates, they tender for potash. When they do that, you know, it can be some sizable tons, and it can change the market pretty quickly. But the reality is, in-country, even if the government paid $600 a ton for the urea, they may be charging the farmer $200 a ton, right? There can be that much subsidy. Their bill for ag input subsidies has been as large as $27 billion, okay? That's more than they spend on national defense. That's significant, right? Let's just talk about India a little bit. India is a democracy. Did you know that? It's the largest democracy in the world. Why? They got over 1.1, 6, 1.8 billion people. 40% of that population is involved in agriculture, you know? Now, they don't farm 5,000 acres, they might find, farm half an acre, right? It's for subsistence living. It's a totally different system. They don't have much infrastructure, okay? So in some ways, the government's doing and subsidizing that ag import, that urea, to keep people fed, for crowd control, and get boats. That's just, this is how it works. So they're going to pay what they have to pay to get those tons in there. They'll do it to the extent that the market and they've got the money and the ability to pay their bill, right? So that can distort and increase the value of fertilizers at times. You know, I remember talking to someone several years ago, the fertilizer price had dipped down. They said, oh, look, this dip isn't really real. It's just, you know, market timing. I said, look. I'm not trying to offend anyone here, but I said, when you've got 40% of the corn crop in the U.S. that goes into a mandated ethanol program, you've got India that's spending $27 billion in ag input subsidies. There's nothing real about that. It's not really reflective of what that grain's worth. It's almost reflective of what our policies are. It's reflective of what that government's trying to do with their purchasing. So I'm not saying it's right or wrong. Just saying these are the things that create the value of what they do. So that's one of the things that's up there. Um, I'm going to get into a few of the other things that have really changed the value over the last, uh, you know, several, well, really years. We've been on the board several years. Um, you know, we're still feeling the impact of COVID, for example. And why I want to bring that up is it, it's just... As economy slowed around the world, it changed the freight lanes. It changed where cargoes were positioned, where vessels were positioned, and we're still feeling the pain of some of that. In my opinion, some of this inflation that we're feeling is really the cost of repositioning freight back into where it's needed against the normal trade lanes. Right? These are all things that add up to why fertilizer values have gotten to where they are. 
Now, I just want to say, you know, we, we go on and on. I, these are things I think about all the time. All these circles, at some point or another, you know, are having an impact in what I'm thinking about why fertilizer is the price that it is and where it may go, okay? Let's see. You know, probably the planet acres has less to do with it than some of the other things. I think the government payments is really important. Transportation costs, you know, grain traders, you know, old grain traders will say, we're not really trading grain, we're really trading freight. And that's true. It's really about freightments. And again, that's why I'm saying this about, you know, the vessel disruption of where they're displaced in the world, that changes values. I was having a discussion earlier, we were talking about just the barge numbers uh, here in the U.S., okay? If you go back two years ago, things were really tough. Fertilizer prices were low, freight values were low, people were challenged making any money or return on their barges. Scrap steel is high. They sold the barges. Now we have less barges. Now we have higher freight. You know, high prices here, high prices. These things are work out in time, but these are things that all kind of come together to create this value where, uh, where we are today. So all that said, you know, we had high prices here in the U.S. for fertilizer for the last year, year and a half. And I, I'm glad you guys are all sitting down because you're probably not going to believe this. We are still the lowest cost fertilizer in the world when it comes to the farm game. Okay? Here's one of the reasons why. For all the fertilizer that gets used in the world, the U.S. only consumes about 10% of that product. Why does that matter? It's because it's what's going on in the rest of the world that's helped setting the values for the fertilizer. You know, and so these things that occur, like in Europe, with their energy crisis, we'll talk about that a little bit more, but that sets the tone as to why we're to this level, okay? Now, I've got a few other slides that I just wanted to do to show you that sets up just kind of where values have been and, and, and uh, maybe where they're going to go. This is kind of hard to see. All that really matters is you go back about five years ago on soybeans and corn, and this is where, where values have moved. This is basis, CBT, close of day. You know, but you can see how much they've moved up in the last couple of years, right? At the same time, that's what happened with fertilizer prices too. I've got all those different lines represent, you know, liquid, DAP, potash, urea, but they've all moved in the same direction. And another one of the things that it seems like to me, all, all value and all economies are really set on two things. It's all about the value of energy, whether it's in the form of calories or BTUs, right? So there's the value of the calories, there's the value of the BTUs. And you can see as those things shift, you know, in time they come together. Prices start to go down with grain eventually, fertilizer prices will come down. As I tell producers, manufacturers of fertilizer when they're trying to charge more uh, for the potash that I'm getting, for example, I said, look, no one eats potash for breakfast. Your potash is only worth cornflakes, all right? So your potash is gonna come in line to the value of cornflakes at some point. Now, it may not be today, but in time that will happen, right? These two are gonna come, I'm sorry, these two are gonna come together. Okay, so yes, we've got higher prices with fertilizer, but we've also got higher grain prices. 
Now I want to talk about something that, again, we don't always think about on a local level, but impacts what the value of grain is, what the value of fertilizers are in the world, and it's whoop, the value of the dollar. So I took this last week, uh, about maybe seven days before that, the US dollar is trading parity to the euro. It's the first time in over 20 years. So I always like to make this joke too. I know things seem horrible here, but it's worse than the rest of the world. And why do I know that? Because they're willing to own our dollars. That's why. You know, we have a resilient economy. We're capitalists, we're free market, we're democracy. People like putting their money here. That's great for us. That's great for the dollar. It's not so great for grain bags. It's going to impact what exports going to look like. It's going to impact the relative cash value of grain. Okay. Now, eventually, fertilizers will come in line with this, but this is one of the things that's got me concerned about the next several months: grain values, what they'll do, and then what decisions we're going to have to make on fertilizer because it's going to be fairly high. The rest of the world wants fertilizer, you know. Um, so we're going to have this tug of war for a little bit on that value. This next slide, it's going to set up a little bit of a series of things I want to talk about. Uh, it's anhydrous. We're getting ready to go into the anhydrous season. Um, you know, we're the only country in the world that applies anhydrous to the farm. Direct application call. Right? We're the only place that uses anhydrous when it comes to raising a crop. And one of the reasons is the infrastructure. The infrastructure, right? I always make the joke with anhydrous, the reason that they uh, don't use anhydrous in India for nitrogen is that anhydrous is really hard to hand broadcast. Right? We take for granted the infrastructure that we have here. You know, it's a sophisticated, challenging product to move around, right? When you go to India, when they offload the vessel or when they load the vessel, you know how they do it? With people, shovels. They put it in bags. They put those bags on carts. They reel those carts up in the mountain. And they just, you know, spread the fertilizer by hand. You know, they, they don't have the, look at Brazil. I mean, even as sophisticated as Brazil is, they don't have the infrastructure. Gosh, what's it take to get a, a truck uh, of soybeans to market? 1,500 miles, wait in line for seven, 10 days just to get unloaded? You know, they don't have the rail system that we have. They certainly don't have the system to handle anhydrous. You know, not just at the farm gate with the tanks like this with knives, but they also uh, don't have you know, storage tanks. They don't have pipelines. A lot of stuff that we have they don't have the rail system that we have. You know, we've got a lot of interior production. Right? We produce a fair amount of nitrogen within, you know, like Oklahoma, Texas, right? They don't even have the kind of interior production. And I'm just saying that, and I want to talk a little bit about anhydrous values. This is another simple map that just explains the trade flows of the world. You know, I, I'm putting it up there to just show that there's not, there's a lot of places that make anhydrous, but there's few places that can really utilize it. In the U.S., most of the anhydrous, well, I'll break it down. A 
third of the anhydrous goes into direct application, into someone using it in the farm. Another third goes into industrial, you know, the cleaning, carbon scrubbing, that kind of stuff. I don't know that much about it, I'm just a fertilizer guy, I just know they call it industrial, okay? But the, the other third goes into phosphate manufacturing, okay? So if you're gonna make MAP or DAP, you gotta have some anhydrous. And a big producer of phosphates in the world is Morocco. Much like potash, there's only so many places in the world where there's a phosphate uh, field, where there's a phosphate mine. You've got North Africa, you've got Florida, you've got a little bit in Wyoming, you know, you've got some in Russia, okay? So those guys need the anhydrous. So North Africa has to buy anhydrous. They don't have any natural gas there, right? So they buy anhydrous for their production of phosphates. And I'm saying that to be aware of, okay, you've got this issue with Russia. People are not happy with Putin and the way that he's uh, treating the Ukraine. And I'm not here to make a statement about that being right or wrong. I'm just saying that those sanctions are in place around the world. It's making it challenging for people to want to do business with Putin, right? So there's a lot less export currently than there has been. Now, it's not quite as bad with fertilizers, but it is with the other energy sources, okay? So just keep that in mind, because a lot of what's going on right now with nitrogen prices and fertilizer prices in general is the energy values, particularly the energy value of natural gas in Europe. Okay, so just take a look at that chart. I think it's pretty clear you can see what the market's done in the last several months. And so that stopped any production of nitrogen that the Europeans may have had. Now, all of a sudden, they've got to buy in their nitrogen needs. They're buying them in from Egypt. They're buying them in from Saudi Arabia. They're buying them in from sometimes the US. Okay, so all this energy crisis that started about a year ago is one of the reasons we saw anhydrous rally so much. And you think, well, okay, what does European natural gas have to do with us here? Well, that demand is still there in the world. We have the ability to be able to export. If you go back and you look at Florida, Florida's really not close to any anhydrous production. Like I said, most of it's in Texas, Oklahoma. They import tonnage to produce phosphates, to produce DAP, to produce MAP. A lot of it comes from Trinidad, okay? It, some of it comes from Donaldsonville, Louisiana, but they import a fair amount of tonnage. They can import it from Russia, as far as that goes. So all of a sudden, this natural gas gets high. They're not producing in Europe. Now people are having to cover in from different places. So we've got the ability to export, the U.S. does, anhydrous to the rest of the world. So we're really seeing a bidding war for nitrogen values, which goes back to what I was saying earlier. It's all about energy, whether it's in the form of BTUs or calories. Okay, and we're just competing with the rest of the world on what they're willing to pay for nitrogen, for phosphates, for potash. And this is the biggest reason. Now, 